Welcome to the Hashtag Call to Scene podcast, the show focused on the strategic disruption of the status quo in technical organizations, communities, and events. And hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Hashtag Call to Scene podcast. I am so happy to have another fabulous Black educated woman, um, Dr. Faye Cobb Payton. Would you please introduce yourself? Good afternoon. My name is uh, Faye Cobb Payton, as you mentioned. I am a full tenured professor at North Carolina State University. Uh, my area is information technology and analytics. Um, I have been um, a professor for a number of years, have worked in corporate for a number of years, um, have um, some experience in uh, government, and ready to have a great conversation with you. The words I say, let me say this, the words I say are my own. They are not representative of any institution that can say that I'm an employee there. So this is me speaking. All right. You've been warned. All right. So we always start the conversation with two questions. Why is it important to cause a scene and how are you causing a scene? Well, you know, when you sent me those two questions, I had to say, you know, how are we defining a scene? So I'd like to think that a scene is a disruption but it's, it's a disruption for a cause that is a worthy cause to take up, right? So how do I cause a scene? Sometimes I think I cause a scene just by being in the room. Some things I, sometimes I think I cause a scene by the things that I publish and research. Sometimes I cause a scene because what I say is not necessarily something that everyone would agree with. And I'm okay with that. I really am. I'm, I'm comfortable with um, disagreement. What I um, am not comfortable with is uh, lack of respect, marginalization, hyper-invisibility. Um, I'm not comfortable with those things. So I think causing a scene means to work against systems, forces, ideologies that cannot... Um, that cannot take a, a serious look at who we are um, in this space. And so that's what I mean by, you know, causing a scene. So it may take a little, it's a rub. It's going to be a little bit of uncomfortability on both sides. A lot of times it's uncomfortability for us, especially as black women. Um, we know about that, but um the scene has to be done, right? We didn't get Harriet and we didn't get Rosa and we didn't get, you know, Ava DuVernay. We didn't get all these black women. We didn't get Gwen Eiffel because they, these black women wanted to be comfortable. And so I think in, in their own space and in my own space is where I try to cause a scene. I try to stay in my lane, right? And in my lane, and I always say these terms, I try, I am trying to leave the discipline better than what I found. That's real key to me. That's my scene. That's the scene that I want to cause. 
So hopefully I answered your Mm -hmm. question. Yo, you did. And I want to apologize, everyone. Um, Our guest's pronouns are she and her. I'm still getting used to um, making this a standard because, you know, I like to model behavior. And if we're talking about inclusion and diversity, um, I want to respect people's pronouns. So at times I will forget and I will look at my notes and I will come back and say what the pronouns are because I want to model for you how we practice inclusion and diversity um, in our spaces. So, um, so let me start with you. So when before the guests, when the guests first came on, um, many of you don't know this, but I like to, although we don't use the video, I like to have the video on. So it's like a conversation. And I did not even see her voice yet. But when I heard, I mean, I did not see her face yet. But when I heard her voice, it reminded me of Auntie sitting on a porch. And I was like, yes, we about to have a good time. <laughs> Well, you, I don't think this audience, who is predominantly white people, I tell y'all, you, you do not understand what it does to my soul to bring on black women who I can be, I'm put this in quotes, naked with. I don't have to explain anything. They get it. Uh, we had a guest um, say recently said, say it with your chest. I know exactly what she was talking about when she said that. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some things that I don't care where you are in the United States. If you are a black person, particularly a black woman, there's a, a, a similar vocabulary. Mm-hmm. And to hear the, the sound of the, the deepness and richness of your voice that came through before I could see, I was like, yes, yes. <laughs> because this work can be very isolating. Sure. It can be very isolating. And, and I want you to talk about, um, because I've brought, brought on, one of the reasons I keep bringing Black educators on, Black academics on, mm-hmm. um, is because this, cult, this community is predominantly white. And it's predominantly white with people who do not have degrees. Now, I'm just going to, let's be honest about this. It's a whole bunch of white folks who have been given the benefit of the doubt who assume positive, people assume positive intent and do not have the scholarly Mm -hmm. backgrounds or the lived experience, I'm going to say not or, plus the lived experience to understand some of the traps, some of the harm that we create just because we're ignorant of what's going on. So I continue to bring Black women, um, scholared Black women, not to prove anything to y'all, but to showcase their work so that you know, as I always say, Black women are the moral compass of this country. We are driving this scholarship. It's not just white women. It's not just Indians. It's not just Asians. It is all of us. And Black women are at the forefront. We are the most degreed people in this country. And we're there for a reason, because we already know if we don't come with the papers, we get discounted. Yeah. To- you know, to that, I would say that there's a there's a certain level of credentialing that um, brings um, one to the space. Then there is the idea of who gets to participate in the space. And those are two different, two very different experiences, two very different dynamics, two very different um, power structures or power grids, I would say. Um, so, um, yes, higher education and all of that sort of gives you one layer of, 
um, pass, if you will, for being uh, qualified, if we're going to use that word. But it certainly is not the end all to be all because, you know, I've had experiences and continue to have experiences where, um, yeah, I could, I could, you know, it's like this. Can, how many boxes can you check? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and when you can check all the boxes and there's still, you're still experiencing barriers, then it's not a full, full blown level of participation as others may experience. Mm-hmm. And it's not the boxes. Yeah. Um, and it's not the boxes. It is definitely not the and, boxes. And you speak of the, the reasons and people need to understand the difference between diversity and what's the difference between inclusion. Diversity is about recruitment. Um, the variety of recruitment inclusion is about retention and it's how many people stay um, because they feel welcome, safe um, um, to participate in the, in, in the um, whatever that is. And it's interesting because I keep continue to tell people in this space, we continue to act as if we're building widgets. We're in the industrial age. We're no longer in the industrial age. We're in the information age, which requires information to be turned into knowledge so that it can be valuable. And so I just uh, picked up a new book and it was um, um, Capitalism Without Capital. And it talks Mm -hmm. about the same thing. It's about when you had widgets, when you had machinery, your capital was physical, tangible. We're in a space where we need our assets are intangible assets, which means they are usually some, it comes from somebody's knowledge base. And Mm -hmm. when you don't have inclusion, you're missing out on that knowledge base. That's why I just keep, it's just like people want to, well, we should, we should want inclusion and diversity just because it's the right thing to do. I'm like, okay, yeah. If we waited on the right thing to do, we would never be in spaces. Um, Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I would, I would add something to that. Uh I think, I think that there's the diversity piece that you talk about, right? Simple recruitment, count the number of, you know, this number of Hispanics, this number of blacks, this number of Asians, this number of women, that's the diversity piece, right? Um, the inclusion piece is actually, you know, and I liken it to people always say, you know, are you included in the fabric? Are you part of the DNA, the mm-hmm. culture of the organization? But I think often what gets left out of this conversation mm-hmm. is the equity piece. Oh, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. I think it's ne- to me, if we, if we start complete, we st- please stop talking about equality and start t- shifting to equity. Yes. Mm-hmm. Because, um, you know, there is this. There is this um, analogy that, you know, everything is equitable, which means you make the assumption that we all start from the same place, that we we all need the same height for a bicycle Mm -hmm. in order to drive, in order to ride the bicycle. But equity says, I'm going to make adjustments according to your height and your weight and, you know, your comfortable level. I'm going to ergonomically design this for you. And so I think when we do these kinds of things, equity says, then we're all going to start from a place of parity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. And that's <clears throat> that's the big thing I'm, I'm pushing back on a lot is there is there, there is no way. And I say this in my talks all the time and, and people laugh. I'm like, there's no way I can be equal to a white dude um, in, in effort. I mean, in results, I could put in the same amount of effort. I could put in 10 times the amount of effort. But because of the systems that in place, my results will not be the same. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we start with equal, when my results aren't the same, it becomes a fa- failure in me, in me. 
Mm-hmm. If we started, if we talk about equity, we understand it's the systems that are in place that we need to, to, to manage and figure out how to ensure that um, those who are participating are being able to participate in the fullest ab- uh, range of their mm-hmm. own abilities. Mm-hmm. And um, so I want you to talk, could you give me some, because um, I came across you, I cannot right now remember who said I need you to have you on the show because I've had so many people on the show. So tell us about some of your work. What are you doing? First of all, the fa- I want to congratulate you for being a black woman who's a tenure professor, but go ahead. <laughs> Thank you. It was Brandy. I think Brandy, Dr. Marshall. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it was Dr. Marshall. Mm-hmm. Um, so shout out to her. Um, so about my work. So my my research, I worked in industry before going to get my PhD. And in industry, I worked as um as an engineer. And um, I left industry and I also worked as a consultant. So I left industry and went to get my PhD. And in my PhD process and my research has really looked at this intersection of technology and healthcare delivery, particularly when it comes to um, data and data quality. That's how I started, right? And then I was designing I was designing systems for based on certain episodes of illnesses. So I designed systems that were used for persons that were living in socially isolated environments because of their medical conditions, like caregivers of Alzheimer's disease patients and dementia patients and persons living with HIV. Because back then, you know, HIV had this real stigma associated with it. And the work involved um, designing those systems, modeling those systems, but also looking at what kinds of data came out of um, electronic medical records to um, inform decision makers in clinical settings. And then I had this experience, honestly. I had this experience, and I was going along just fine doing my research. I fell into this, I literally fell into what then what people would call the, the diversity research, asking the questions, where are the other people that look like me? <laughs> and I fell into this um, work and started doing uh, more work around diversity um, and representation in computing. And then I took another turn when it came to the healthcare work because a student of mine had a had a bad experience with a healthcare environment. And she was a black female student. And so I sort of took a look at what does it mean to have inclusive design, especially inclusive design for systems that are intended to address certain episodes of illnesses, particularly for black millennials, black females was the intended target. And I got into that work. And now the work really is focusing on even more of that, but using analytical techniques and then looking at some of the the issues around social justice um, in AI and health design and representation across tech. So the healthcare piece still remains very salient and important to me because that's where I started. You see, I was one of those people that thought I wanted to go to medical school until I had um, 
a chance experience uh, or a curriculum experience in high school where I had to go out for clinical rotations and uh, saw too much <laughs> that my stomach could take. And I said, no, I need to be on the other side of care. So that's, that's really where my work is. It's anything that deals with where are the, where are disparate systems, people, and how can technology either, either um, I wouldn't say level the playing field, but raise awareness to issues that are otherwise gone um, unintended by the technologies that we create. Okay, so what you said was very at a very high level. Mm-hmm. I would like you to give some specific examples because, um, yeah, a lot of people, I'm going to be honest, who follow me um, always mm-hmm. feign ignorance. So I, mm-hmm. I, I, I like to give, when I have these experts on here, because um, I speak about, one of the things I've been talking about lately is how, I, how Medicare for All will will harm people and people don't mm-hmm. understand when I say that. So let me break this down. And then I want you to give some specifics about what you're talking about. So when I say Medicare for harm, I mean, Medicare for all mm-hmm. as written is going to harm people. This is what I mean. I, I give three examples. One is um, um, the Affordable Care Act harmed because I live in a state um, that did, that chose not to opt into Medicare. And still now, um, I c- can't afford health insurance. So although I qualify for the Medicare um, portion and to qualify for health, in- uh, health insurance, because my state chose not to do that for, well, it's, you know, white supremacist um, oppressive reasons, I was not able to get health insurance. And because I was not able to get health insurance, then I had a penalty at tax time. That is That becomes a tax on the poor. Um, so when I look at, based on that experience I had, when I look at healthcare for all, nothing about what I've seen and the people that I'm hearing talks about fundamentally the systems. It talks about healthcare, um, Medicare for all in these really blanket and simplistic ways. All you give, if you produce, we, we, we could provide everybody with healthcare, everybody will be taken care of because that's a basic right. Okay. In theory, that sounds good. Mm-hmm. Um, in practice, it's not going to work. And I give you three reasons why it's not going to work. One is Physicians being trained today, they've done recent research that says there are physicians being trained today that think black people have thicker skin and can and can endure more pain than white people. This is why we did not get caught up in the opioid epidemic when it was about prescriptions. So there is an inherent eugenics part of this that it has nothing to do with healthcare, uh, Medicare for all. It is fundamentally how doctors are trained and people who come to become doctors what their lived experiences are secondly the recent research has shown that no matter when you um when you evaluate for wealth when you evaluate for um, income when you evaluate for class black women and their babies are still in the most harm when it comes to mortality um birth, birth mortality that has nothing to do with there's nothing i'm hearing from Medicare for All that's going to address any of that. And then the third thing is, if you live in a, I live in a city, state, that has a great trauma unit. This is the only trauma unit in, in anywhere 
near me. Um, so I have access to health care if I'm in an emergency that someone in a rural part of my state does not have. Medicare for all does not address that. And there are hospitals in my state right now that are closing down because they don't have that act that, that we still don't have that Medicare um, um, buy-in. Nothing about Medicare for all addresses that. And that's just three things that I've brought up that I see a problem with that the most vulnerable will be, will be continued to be harmed by these things. Mm -hmm. um, so now I want you as an expert, as a person who has researched this, can you give us some examples of the challenges you see related to in, um, um, information technology, analytics, and healthcare? Yeah, so, so here's the thing. I think um, part of what we see is the quality of the data that exists, right? In and of itself, a lot of data sets are inherently biased. So we go off and we create and we model based on that same as we oftentimes call dirty data, unsanitized data. So that, that's one effect going in, right? So we got the dirty data going in. We have the model that's impacted by the state or whatever we're going to code or write just, just for your users, right? So we'll know. So if I'm looking to find out what's the links between women and outcomes of birth rates among all women. So I got that dirty data going in. I have a model that's based on that dirty data. Now I'm making decisions. I'm making, I'm interpreting results or in the case of physicians or doctors or nurses or any of the clinical providers, now I'm making decisions based on that dirty data. Inherently, that's on top of the biases that you speak of because that is true. It is true that irrespective of income levels, irrespective of geographical locations, Black babies have a shorter lifespan than any babies, regardless, right? That, that's a known, that is fact. We cannot argue with the facts. Those are the facts. Everyone in the hashtag called the scene community shares the same common beliefs based on a set of four specific guiding principles. One, tech is not neutral, nor is it apolitical. Two, intention without strategy is chaos. Three, lack of inclusion is a risk and increasingly a crisis management issue. And lastly, but most importantly, four, we must prioritize the most vulnerable. To find out more about the guiding principles and adding them to your Twitter profile banner, please visit hashtag causeascene.com. Can I argue with the facts? Those are the facts. So I'm in a state that has been apparently addressing these issues for the last 20 years, but addressing and actually implementing and making changes in policies have not taken place. So that's where my research comes in, right? I am here to bring questions and bring recommendations to. So I'll give you an example. One of my, um, one of my research colleagues and I, we decided to take a look at what diseases actually are prominent among women. And if we can take a look at what are the diseases that are commonly impacting women by race, ethnicity. So we were in particular, we wanted to take a look at chronic diseases. So we know women are, especially women of color and black women are impacted by things like heart disease, diabetes, um, 
heart disease, diabetes, chronic, um, chronic respiratory, a number of the, these diseases, right? But what happens when we look for, for certain populations, a lot of times decisions are made based on one disease. But when you have heart disease that is combined or mixed with someone that has, let's just say diabetes, then you might need to come up with a different treatment plan, particularly for, for black and brown women, if their scenarios are showing that there is a correlation or causation between multiple conditions as opposed to just one condition. So I hope I'm saying that in, in layman's terms so that everyone can sort of understand it. And it's important that we continue to shine light on these kinds of um, these kinds of scenarios. But here's another one. Uh, let me let me kind of girt that a little bit because yeah. I need them to understand. It is not uncommon. I have a friend who just turned 45 years old who and who has both high blood pressure mm-hmm. and diabetes. Right. That is not uncommon among black women. My aunt died in her early 40s um, from undiagnosed diabetes. I mean, um, hypertension. Yes. Um, And when she finally realized what was going on, by the time they got it, it was total organ failure, sepsis, and then death. Yes. Yes. And so not only that, so, so there is, so we've even looked at issues around breast cancer where we've seen that particularly in um, black women, where the data have shown that black women are diagnosed much later in age. And when they are diagnosed, the severity of the disease is quite daunting, right? So you're getting a stage three and stage four much later in diagnosis as opposed to earlier diagnosis where treatment probably could have helped. Um, so yeah, so those are the kinds of things to wait to raise awareness and as you would say, cause a scene and cause a scene around very much the lived experiences that we have. And so um, that student that brought something to light for me mm-hmm. also brought to light what eventually came out was you know, we were looking at a large part of of the issues around sexually transmitted diseases and particularly HIV. Whereas what eventually came out for us was these students, and we're talking about black students, these students, college students, by the way, these students were saying, hey, we get that. We understand that. We appreciate that dissemination. But there's another side that we I don't know that we were surprised of, but we did not, we didn't have our eye on the ball was mental health. Mm. And so in listening to how they use technology and what they say in social systems and diet and analyzing, using analytical tools, we were able to pick up on the mental health cues that young people were telling us. Right. They were right there. They were telling us. And so that's that's what I mean by causing a scene and you heighten awareness of and you say, look, these are the things that need to happen. And we are black women that are doing the work. 
Not saying that anyone else is not doing it, but we also are contributors mm. to this work. So what were some of the indicators? Because now I'm fascinated. So you were focusing on HIV AIDS and what were the indicators in the the data that brought up the red flags about the mental health and could they have been missed if you, if your subjects or the students didn't have the same similar lived experience from you? Because that's what I'm trying. That's yeah. I'm trying to. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. 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 Right. So those are interesting. Those are interesting inquiries. Right. So what were the indicators? So some of the indicators were actually brought out using what we call some some text mining and text analytic tools that helped us to take a look at what was the language and the linguistics that were being used um, sort of in social modes, right? In social outlets. And so text mine. Okay. I'm going to stop you just right quick. What, what was the, um, what was the model? Was this quantitative, qualitative mixed method? Mixed methods. Okay. Mixed See, methods. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad you said that because tech is so heavily, they so fall so much on quanti- quantitative yeah. and I'm like, you need qualitative yeah. to understand yeah. Yeah, you quantitative. Do. You do. You need, right. the, you, live the, you need the lived experience. Right. To, okay. Right. So go ahead. Right. So that's a good point. So the, so we started out with um, qualitative because we were big proponents of, and we are big proponents of the richness of the data will be missed by all of the quant. Mm-hmm. Right. And so so we were hearing what they were saying in a qualitative zone. And by the way, for people there, you know, there are certain groups of people that think that qualitative is, you know, not as rigorous or not as valid, but there are ways to quantify qualitative data, which is what we did. Um, so we got the lived experience. So we listened to that. Then we, went to the tech to see was could we validate what was being said based on the lived experience that's how we did it the second thing you asked is um could we have gotten that level of granularity had we not been black women mm-hmm. right and if the students had not this level of trust i think not i don't think so i i do know that by and large the students that we were, by the way, some of the students were part of the, um, the part of the research team. I think that also helped as well. But that speaks to relationship also. And there's a level of trust. There you go. Exactly. Mm-hmm. exactly. And that's, and that's the, that's one of the big things that's missing when we go back to, when we talk about inclusion and diversity and we're talking about being in all these other things. There's a trust that, that must be underlining any relationship if you if I am to put myself out there um and so you're saying the fact that some of the students were a part of the research some of the students um so yeah so this is this is really about relationships and I've often said this to you know when I've given talks or talk to young people it's not about how well you can code it's not about you designing your system it's not about how well you know a network server protocol, these things and what you and I are talking about in terms of what what a large part of the body said, large part of the um, scholarly community calls inclusive excellence. This is really about relationships. 
And failure to be attuned to relationships means that um, we're not pulling, we're not using all of the levers and all of the assets that we have in community to make this happen, nor on the flip side, nor are we being represented in spaces and places where um, we traditionally have not had voice and I would say um, large-scale influence. And and, and I want to mm-hmm. bring something. I love how my conversation, we get back, we can circle back, is because one of the reasons that I know my community trusts me is because I spend time, even virtually, building relationships. And an example of that is the fact, just, just a simple, I want you folks to listen to this, a simple example of that was when I went back and gave Dr. Um, um, the doctor's um, pronouns. Because that, that, if it does not build relationship in us, it builds relationships with people who are listening to the podcast who pronouns really mean something to them and they know that they will be respected. Mm-hmm. And that's what you just talked mm-hmm. about. People always want to think that these, that everything is some, mm-hmm. this coded, you know, let's code everything. Stop trying to extrapolate out the human and things and deal with, Building respect and trust into relationships—that's where the the richness and the and, and and that's where you you're really going to be able to pull out. As you say, you got this you got this mental health thing that you didn't even see was there before, or you didn't even anticipate was there before. Oh, no. But because oh, no. of the relationships that were there, because you value the the lived experiences of these individuals, you didn't question. They didn't have to prove their lived experience. Right. And that's and that's what happens so often when we come into the space and say, this is not how we will prove it. What's the data for that? No, 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 no. That's my quantitative. That's the qualitative I'm bringing. And I and I don't need to you. I don't need to bring you data. My lived experience is all the data. you Right. Right. Exactly. And and the idea here was, is, you know, and I, you know, I often said to the team, you know, we all have something to offer but we meet people where they are, not what we expect them to be or what we want them to be. You have to, you have to meet them where they are. Oh, I say that all the time. <laughs> yeah. But that, that's an educated, that's an educated perspective. Yeah. Meeting the student where they are. Cause if you try to, I mean, we, I have some, I was a high school mm-hmm. teacher, special ed certified. Mm-hmm. I knew what we had to be at the end of the year, but I knew yes. all them babies couldn't yes. get there at the same time in the same way. We had a goal by by the end of May where we're going to end up. But when we're talking about September, we all doing some different things trying to get to that goal at the end of the year. Well, and you know, that example that you give brings up a really good point when we're talking about inclusion and when we talk about equity. Right. And each each of your each of your babies, if you call them your students. Oh, yeah, that was my yeah, baby. Each, of, <laughs> each student, you had to give them a bicycle, a stand or something based mm-hmm. on where they were. And this is the same thing. This is no different when we're talking about inclusion in this space called tech or, you know, um, mm-hmm. I, I, I also think that um, the reality is you bring up another good point, you know, persons with disabilities. I mean, we can't, I mean, you like, again, you have to meet people where they are. It, it is not a one size fits all. And I say, stop. We have to stop looking for simple solutions to complex problems. We really yes. just have to. There is no one size fit. Even among 
in even in homogeneous spaces, there is no one size fits all. Yeah, yeah, right. And so this gets to, you know, this sort of gets to what people have parsed out of Kimberly Crenshaw's intersectionality aspects, right? I mm-hmm. mean, this is this is diversity among heterogeneous heterogeneous groups that does exist. I mean, it, it's interesting because people seem to think that, you know, all black women is something that's gonna fit all black women. Well, that's not necessarily. Yeah, we're not a monolith. <laughs> yeah, we're not a monolith, and we have our intersections, just like everybody mm-hmm. else. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. I I just I, I'm really I never know where these conversations are going to go, and I'm really enjoying because I am um, finishing up my doctoral program, and I really when I, I stepped away from a year for from it for a year. And I'm back in it and I'm like, oh my God, this should be mixed methods. And my friend was like, Kim, it's get it done. We're not changing it. And you are getting it done. You can do the other research later. Right now we need well, to that's get that's true. It done. That's true now. That that I'm with your friend. Exactly. Right? Like, yeah, I'm with your friend. But that I is- see after a year of just taking off and doing the work and uh, working with my clients and stuff, I'm like, oh man, this would be really good. But I'm like, but yeah. And so it's, I, I, I and I say that because it, again, we're always trying to extrapolate out the human part of things. We're always trying to get things down to the, mm. oh, what we consider unbiased, qualitative, quantitative data. But even that is never unbiased because whoever created it had a lived experience. Right. And they bring that lived experience to it. And it goes back to my example about when we were trying to model these data sets, trying to find, you know, what's the causation correlation relationship between different health conditions. Stepping back from that, even saying, oh, the data set that we have is already it's already biased. It's already, um, it's already been tattered with. And it's not just because it has missing values. There's a reason why it may have missing values and certain attributes. The data are a reflection of techniques, processes that were designed by people that have their biases. Mm-hmm. And so um, my concern as a researcher has always been, if we get down to that granular level, if the level of bias, let's just say, is at 0.1 or 0.001, by the time I go model, analyze, make recommendations, or come up with some conclusions, I've taken that all the way through the process. And certainly at some point, I've amplified Mm -hmm. what was a 0.001 to something like 10%. Mm-hmm. And that 10% might seem small, but when you're dealing with um, when you're dealing with populations that are already at the margins, mm. that mm-hmm. has much more of a profound and significant impact on how we deliver the care, how who we who we interview for a position, how we assign students to Um, gifted and non-gifted classes, who takes AP exams, who gets a mortgage paid. So it's not, so it's not just, it's, I mean, it's the whole person, right? You know, and, and so what I'm saying is it has a balloon effect across the spectrum of life's experiences for those at the margins. 
I'm now ready to articulate and to publicly share my need to shift from causing the scene. Currently this work, this push for equity, for minimizing harm, and for prioritizing the most vulnerable is collectively viewed by many as noise, bullying, troublemaking, as contrarian for controversy's sake, rather than what it is, a necessary evolution for the overall health and well-being of those who work for us, partner with us, buy from us, invest in us, and society as a whole. My focus from this day forward is to forge a path to welcoming and psychological safety in systems, institutions, and policies at scale because I will no longer put new wine into old wineskins. My team and I will be spending the next few months making the necessary changes to ensure that my new commitment to doing the proactive work of leading a movement framed by the guiding principles and seen through an anti-racist lens strategically happens with a relaunch on Juneteenth. To be kept informed of our progress, please follow me on Twitter at K-I-M-C-R-A-Y-T-O-N-1 Kim Creighton 1, and on our new Kim Creighton's Community Cafe Discord server. When I started Hashtag Cause a Scene in 2019, it was out of my frustration that no one was listening. Now that you're listening, it's time to get to work. Thank you for the years of support, and I'll meet you on the other side. Have a wonderful day. life's experiences for those at the margins and that's and that's the part that just pisses me off so much because that's one thing i do like about qualitative um data we understand as qualitative researchers that we are a part that we have to recognize that we are a part of influencing the data that just our presence in collection um includes bias so when i'm asking any um, participants questions I am very mindful even though I'm doing it vi- virtually I'm very mindful that I'm not shaking nodding my head when they answer I'm very mindful that I'm just like really because I don't want them to get visual clues based on so they can start mm-hmm. manipulating their answers to what they think I want all of that is involved and when we sit back and we continue to say that tech is neutral we are amplifying we're starting with as you say dirty data and it's more than 0.001 because we have any, we, we're even denying the, the fact that we deny that this bias is bias. And then we're mm-hmm. amplifying that. And the people who are most vulnerable are always the ones who are most impacted. Right. Exactly. And it's, the, and I tell people all the time, that's why I want to hashtag cause and guiding principles. The very important one is we must prioritize the most vulnerable. If the most vulnerable feels safe in a space, then everybody else is going to be taken care of. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a good analogy. And also privilege change. When I come into a space, if I, as a black woman growing up in the South, am in a space with trans black women, I'm going to protect the trans black women. And that's where my efforts are going to be because if they feel safe, they, everybody else feels safe. And this is Mm -hmm, why mm -hmm. every time you, I'm not, we are not trying to assimilate anymore because assimilation, again, people does not allow you to get the non-tangible asset that you need to compete, um, to be uh, competitive. And also as a risk management issue, um, if I'm sitting, because this is what happens to black women when we had a job and you keep shutting us down every time we open our mouth. Your building can be on fire and all we're going to do is grab our purse and go on out the door and we ain't going to say nothing. And you're just going to be like, why didn't you say, well, every time you wouldn't have believed that the building was on fire, but I'm going to get out. Mm. 
And this is what happens. We need to listen to native populations. And this is one thing that I saw with the, and I don't know her last name, Greta, the white, the little white girl, the young white girl, who's now the face of climate change. And I was pushing back on this when it first happened. And people were like, well, at least the young people are blah, blah, blah. And I was like, "Mm -mm, nope, this is rooted in white supremacy. There have been young people of color talking about climate for, for, for longer than anybody has ever known who Greta is. And, and now people are seeing it because I have people coming in. One um, one person in my community, he's like, "Yeah, you're right." What we're seeing now is everybody. Greta's now the def- the blonde young mm-hmm. white girl is now the default for everything else. So now the narrative is, in addition to Greta, there are other people of there are people of color who are doing this. Um, Greta, that it's like she we've made her the default, the face of climate change where there are people being uh, indigenous communities all over this globe, um, black people and in, in bl- young black people like the, um, the girl in Flint who've been talking about this stuff forever, but no one has listened to them. And now they are, because now we have a default, which is whiteness is always a default. Mm. Now everybody mm-hmm. else is measured against mm. what Greta does. Well, I think the, um, I think the challenge in that is, and, and the literature bears it out, what is the default? And that default aligns with who uh, gets credence or who gets credit. But it's Mm -hmm. also about who's controlling the narrative. Yes. And I think controlling that narrative and who gets to tell the story, who tells the story. I think those are definitely things that impact um, our experiences in this space called tech. And that's what's really um, causing a lot of people angst right now, because there are people from different with different lived experience demanding that their stories be told, mm-hmm. demanding that they tell their own narrative um, and not defaulting to the narrative that has 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 been out here. And I see that. I don't know if you noticed with the 1619 project. Mm-hmm. Um, she's getting a lot of pushback from other historians. And she t- spoke about it on um on um not Jimmy Kimball um the date not the Daily what's the guy from South Africa oh Trevor Noah yeah she mm-hmm. she was on his show and she says she gets it because there have been people who've built their whole reputations in academia on this one narrative and so when you have someone else coming in and saying but uh, not but that's one side of the coin. Let's talk about another, uh, the lived experiences of some other people. And that totally contradicts the happy, the happy Negro that you've been portraying. Yeah, mm-hmm. I get it. Because now your whole scholarship has been based on this. Your whole reputation has mm-hmm. been based on this. And we're, she's seeing, and we're seeing publicly how fiercely these individuals are fighting against what you're, what you speak of is, this is one thing I, I talk about and I, I, I like to hear you, because I, I always say, Facts change. Truth remains the same. Uh-huh. Depending on who gets to tell the story, that's who says what the facts are. But uh-huh. that does not change what the truth is. And we saw it with 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 not the rise of Nazism. We saw it with everywhere there was communism. The old books were thrown out. We saw uh-huh. it in the United States after the um, Civil War, uh-huh. when the when the um, group of white women got to decide the textbooks and wrote a totally different narrative of the victories in the Civil War. Um, mm-hmm. The people in power get to tell that narrative and the people in power. And I say this all the time, always paint themselves as a hero or victim. They are never the villain. <laughs> so 
Um, what do I think about that? You asked. There's a there's a book there there's a book out that talks about. Um, oh my gosh, what's the name of it? Oh, White fragility. Mm-hmm. I think yeah, it mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think this is something you know. So the issues that we're talking about here, I think what is important is for young people, younger than me, certainly for young people that are working to to get into this space is that they, their awareness of these issues need to really be attuned. Right. And, and, and this impacts the workplace environment, this, in this impacts the complete lived experience, but also, and I, and I go to the workplace because tech seems to be this place that thinks that if you're technically sound and everything else will fall into place. And that's a false illusion mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, that that we've set up, right? Because you say, oh, if you can if you can code, if you can do this, you can do some engineering, you can do some mathematics, then you sort of protect it. So we put a lot of reverence mm-hmm. on the technical aspects of what happens um, in educational systems. But once you leave those educational systems and then go into workplace environment, whatever the workplace environment may be, whether it's industry, whether it's nonprofit, whether it's academe, these are lessons. Those lessons must be um, must be something that young people learn because it will impact how you experience your day-to-day in the workplace environment that have nothing to do with your technical aptitude. Nothing at all. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, unfortunately, what has happened is there's a lot of work around this idea of resilient, I call it resilient up the people, but not the structures for which the people will navigate in, right? Whether there's school, workplace, wherever they're going to work. Right? The systems haven't been impacted at all. Not at all. Mm-hmm. Not at all. It's all on the, it's all just resilient, the person, the individual, and not higher levels of organizational analysis to be done to resilient up. The last, the other thing I would say, you know, you said about the 1619 project, you know, that brings into question this whole line of research that has been done because she's changing the narrative. Well, I would venture to say, you know, we started out, you and I started out by talking about diversity and inclusion and uh, moved to diversity, inclusion and equity, which is also in itself has become big business. Right. And, mm-hmm. you know, Uh-oh. not everyone that <laughs> proclaims that they are um, advocates and allies of the work because um, or advocates of the work are actually advocates of the belief of Mm -hmm. the work. And I think those are two separate Mm -hmm. things. And this is one of the reasons why I no longer recommend white fragility. Um, Because what I've seen when Robin D'Angelo wrote it, it, white fragility is an academic term. Um, It tries to explain the responses white people have when race is brought up. In the real, it's an, it's, to me, it's another example of theory meets world and it mm. doesn't pan out because in the real world, what has is happening and what we see constantly is people using that as an excuse 
um, not to do and to continue mm. causing harm. Um, and so it's, it's oh, but that, that's white fragility. No, 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 no. That's willful ignorance. And you still have a consequence for that. So they're screaming, oh, but that's white fragility, which for them, it means, um, and for them, I mean whiteness, and y'all know it. it. For you, it means, oh, I, 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 but there's a, it's like, it's like having um, a cold. I have a cold. I can't control that. So I need to go, no, 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 mm-mm, no, no. Um, you can take your little tears and you can do whatever you need to do with your white mm. fragility um, and go get counseling or whatever you need to do. Because what it does not address is white fragility is the cause. There's an uh, often the majority of the time the effect is something negative to a, mo- to a vulnerable person and and that's what um no one and she talks about it in the book but that's the part that people aren't 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 um they know the language of like you just said that you know it's everybody wants to be woke now so you know people know the language of anti-racism but to actually do the anti-racist work will cause them to be uncomfortable and um and 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 face some 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 complicit com, complicit behaviors that they have, and they're not doing it. So yeah, I don't. I I used to recommend it as a as a kindergarten. I, I guess I still as a as a kindergarten level. If you want to know some language and why you act like this, mm. try that. But if we're talking about you dealing with some consequences of your behavior, we need you to. Listen. I need you to read some black folks because this ain't yeah. this ain't doing yeah. it. Hmm. Well, I um I think the the research that I've been that I started and to you know where I am now, I I certainly I don't know if I had a crystal ball if I would have said it would have ended up where it has ended up. I'm not sure. <laughs> I, I definitely, I definitely know mine yeah. was, was, I, I was just following yeah. the path. <laughs> I was not yeah. playing. You know, and my reality is, is that when I started, um, mm-hmm. you know, you do what you need to do in order to get out. Right. <laughs> and so I picked a topic that I was very interested in. And then there's this thing that's called tenure. Mm-hmm. Right. Then you do what you need to do in order to get that mm-hmm. thing, mm-hmm. that tenure. Right. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, like some people told me, then once you get that, then you do what you need. That You do what you want to do after mm-hmm. that point. And so what I've tried to do is add to the body of work mm-hmm. that looks at this intersection of technology, um, whether un- unintended or intended consequences uh, impacting those that are, again, at the margins along along, as we would say, um, many of lived experience, be it education or healthcare, uh, employment, you, and you name it, because I don't think that those, I don't think that those things are separable. Mm-hmm. Um, in order to understand the whole experience, you must understand the sum of the parts. That's what mm-hmm. I think. So. And that, oh, th- thank you for that. Cause I, I, I tell people all the time, we need to stop living in silos. These are systems. We need to, you need to yeah. understand how, how if I eat some something that is spoiled, my whole system is impacted. Yeah. Um, it's not just my stomach is upset. My stomach is upset. It's going to cause something else. Um, I may vomit. I may get diarrhea or I may get some kind of poisoning and have to go to. There's a whole lot of um, unintended um, out, outcomes of me eating something that was was not right for me. Yeah. Um, and we need to deal with the systems 
Um, and until we talk about the systems and unpacking that, we really are just putting band-aids on bullet holes. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, but yeah, that's um that's sort of what I've been working on and you know, the research and and really trying to um, as you would say, you know, cause, you know, cause some disruption um, to bring awareness to these issues. And, you know, I think it takes it takes all kinds, whether it's those in industry, those in private sector, those in, you know, academe, entrepreneurs. I think it I think it's all of us, uh, mm-hmm. um, you know, sort of causing a, a disruption and 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 where do how things need to evolve. So, so tell me what happens to this recording after we're done? Well, first of all, I want to ask you, what would you like to say um, in your final words? Oh, well, I just want to say, you know what? Those would be my final words. I think it (laughs) takes, no, seriously. I think it takes interdisciplinary. I think Mm -hmm. it takes um, those from uh, multiple sectors in order to literally cause the disruption that we're looking um, to make. I don't think um, comfort and um, ease and I think, you know, pushing those barriers, looking at those barriers. And um, I do want to say this, you know, sometimes the collective, we can all, we can all do what we can do in our, um, in our different lanes. But at some point, you know, understanding what we're doing in those lanes so we can get a, a collective impact look at where we are. I think that's very critical. So, and so we'll end where we, where you, where we started is I, I, what you're speaking of is relationships and relationships require trust. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and this is the the piece that so many people are are missing. There's some, is, some issues that happened in our community recently and it destroyed the trust. Mm. And until that is rebuilt, there's going to be, there's going to be a lot of pain. Um, and, and the, the trust and relationships are key. So thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate this conversation. I loved it. Mm. Thanks for having me. All right. Have a wonderful day. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Hashtag Cause the Scene podcast. And I'd like to thank all our current sponsors of the podcast and the Hashtag Cause the Scene movement. Of course, we strongly encourage everyone to become an individual sponsor of the Hashtag Cause the Scene community. Just visit the website at HashtagCauseTheScene.com to sign up today. On behalf of everyone here at Hashtag Cause the Scene, we'd like to thank you again for listening to today's show and have a wonderful day.